Welcome, WG listeners, to a long read. So for this long read, we head to The New Yorker by Miss Rebecca Mead, called The Common Tongue of 21st Century London. It dropped on February 6th, 2022. And with that said, let's jump right in. In the summer of 2018, my family moved to London, the city of my birth from New York, my home for three decades. We wanted to be closer to my mother as she neared the age of 90, and my husband and I were eager to expand the horizons of our son, who had just turned 13. My parents had moved to Weymouth, on the southern English coast, when I was just three years old, and so London was unfamiliar to me. Acquainting myself anew with the city, I walked its streets and visited its parks, and museums with an exhilarating sense of novelty. Not long after my family settled into a new home near Hampstead Heath, I went south to the Tate Britain Museum on the bank of the Thames to see an ambitious project undertaken by the British artist and filmmaker Steve McQueen. He had made a collective portrait of London by photographing its year three students, second grade in the British system. All the city's elementary schools, public, private, faith-based, special needs, were invited to participate, and more than 1,500 of them agreed to have photographers deputised by McQueen to take a class picture. The result, called Year 3, is an assemblage of more than 3,000 images featuring 76,000 children. Year 3 was overwhelming in scale. Individually framed and mounted on white, the photographs were stacked wall-to-wall, a dozen high, in the museum's lofty Duveen galleries. From a distance, the regular arrangement of brightly coloured rectangles looked like the board of a children's game. Close up, each rectangle resolved into a traditional class portrait, with the tallest children standing in the back row and the smallest sitting cross-legged in the front. Many students wore school uniforms, blue blazers and grey shorts, gingham dresses and red cardigans. The outfits barely changed from those my mother wore when she went off to grammar school, or those I wore when it was my turn to enter the British equivalent of kindergarten. I wish that my mother, who still lives in Weymouth, could have accompanied me, as she would have found the children as irresistibly appealing as I did, with their broad grins showing teeth that are still jostling into position, a boy in a soccer uniform with a soccer player haircut cropped on the sides and long on top, a girl in a green hijab next to a girl with a white satin hairband. Age seven or eight, they are on the cusp of an understanding of the world and of their place as individuals in it. Though the project must have been logistically difficult, with all the paperwork and the permissions and the persuasion, it offered a brilliantly simple conceit, displaying the heterogeneity, class, race, nationality, faith, of young Londoners at the age when they first develop an awareness of their own differences and of the structures that bring them together or keep them apart. The museum was full of lively children scampering from one side of the gallery to the other, pointing at the images and chattering about the faces on the walls. An essential element of Year 3 was that all the classes who sat for McQueen's photographers had the opportunity to come in to see themselves represented. You are the future of London, museum staffers told the students when they arrived, hundreds of them every day. Some of the children had never been to a museum. One purpose of the project was to instill in them the sense that the institution belongs to them, and not just to people like me, a middle-aged ticket buyer, overhearing their squealed reactions. 
Look at this boy picking his nose. Look, here are children with disabilities in wheelchairs. Look, these children have a dog with them, a mascot. Lucky them. London itself belongs to these students, whose parents and grandparents have come from all over. More than 300 different languages are spoken by children who attend London schools, but as I listened to their voices at the Tate, I was struck by how similar to one another they sound. Sociolinguists who study the way that Londoners speak have identified the emergence, since the late 1990s, of a new variant of English among the younger generations, MLE, or Multicultural London English. In recent decades, large-scale studies have been undertaken of language use in Hackney in East London. Historically, Hackney was occupied by white working-class residents, or Cockneys, whose basic elements of speech are familiar not just to Londoners who grew up with them, but to anyone who has watched Dick Van Dyke effortfully twist his tongue in Mary Poppins, saying with for with and ouse for house. The years after the Second World War brought an influx of immigration that resulted in Hackney becoming one of London's most decisively multi-ethnic neighbourhoods. In one cohort of Hackney five-year-olds who were studied between 2004 and 2010, there were Cockneys, but there were many more children with parents from Bangladesh, China, Colombia, Albania, Turkey, the Middle East, the Caribbean, and various African countries. Friendship groups were multi-ethnic, the researchers noted, and often included children who spoke a language other than English at home, or children whose first language was English, of a post-colonial variety such as Ghanaian or Indian English. In this diverse milieu, the children found their way to a new common language. Speakers of MLE use notably different pronunciations from speakers of Cockney. Face, which in Cockney sounds like face, for example, slides closer to fess. In linguistic terms, the Cockney diphthong is replaced by a near monothong. Some of MLE's features are lexical, with vocabulary especially influenced by the language spoken by people with Jamaican backgrounds one of the first post-war immigrant groups to arrive in the East End. But the shifts in the language of London amount to more than the borrowing of vocabulary or changes in pronunciation. There are structural changes too. David Hall, a linguist at Queen Mary University of London, has written of the organic emergence of a new pronoun, man, which, depending on its context, can mean I, or me, or him, or them. As an example of generic impersonal use, Hall gives the example, quote, Man's got to work hard to do well these days, unquote. To describe the second person use, he cites a command that might be issued to an upset friend. Quote, man needs to calm down, unquote. I asked Hall to meet me in a cafe of Minerland in East London, not far from the university. Over coffee, Hall, who is young and bearded and uses many features of Emily in his speech, discussed other attributes of linguistic variant, such as the dropping of prepositions with the verbs go and come in certain contexts. Quote, it has to be some sort of familiar or institutional goal, like, I went pub last night, or I went chicken shop, he told me. It can't be, I went art gallery, unquote. This is a feature that Emily has in common with modern Greek, he said, but it's hard to tell precisely in which foreign languages the novelties of Emily are rooted, because it has emerged from such variegated and fertile ground, quote, it is difficult to say if there's a direct influence from Nigerian English or Jamaican Creole because they are all in the mix somewhere, unquote. Hall explained, moreover, the London children whom Hall and other scholars have studied are influenced more strongly by the phonologies of their peers than by those of their caregivers. Starting at four or five years old, they pull a set of languages and linguistic features and settle on some subset of that pool as their common language. 
They begin to speak like one another instead of like their parents. Quote, Normally, kids until they are eight or nine will copy their caregivers and then they will match the community afterwards. But Hall told me, but these kids are doing it very, very young. It is language change not from the outside but from the inside. They are building it themselves, unquote. If McQueen's cameras had captured the chatter of the year three students as they shuffled into place and smiled, Emily is one language that nearly all of them would have been familiar with. Hall explained to me that when groups who speak in different ways come into frequent contact, people often shift the way they speak, eventually sharing speech styles and modes of pronunciation. If you have an extremely mixed group, one whose members speak, say, 10 different languages, speakers will set on linguistic features that allow them to do what they most want to do, which is communicate. Quote, Ultimately, people want to sound like one another, Hall told me. Linguists use the term accommodation to describe the way that individuals change how they speak to align with one another. It's not cultural appropriation, it's not rude, it's just what we do, Hall said. We accommodate ourselves to other speech because we want to get along, we want to understand, and to be understood. Soon after my son enrolled at his new school, a few blocks from our house, he started bringing home words and phrases that his new peers at the onset of adolescence used to demarcate themselves uh, from their parents, claiming their status as the future of London. The vocabulary was new to his Brooklyn-raised ears, and to me, who had been absent from London for so long. Whenever he brought such words home, I turned them over with him, like fossils found among stones on a pebbly beach. Bear perplexingly means plenty or a lot of. Allow it means leave it alone. Among his classmates are students with English surnames that sound as if they date back to the Norman conquest or earlier. But there are also children with parents from Somalia, Syria, Bangladesh, Turkey, Poland, France and Germany. Some of the students arrived in year three from Romania speaking not a word of English, just listen to them now. For a while my son was the new outsider, the one who talked funny, say aluminium, his classmates demanded, say candy, say elevator. His American accent was long enough established that it now seems likely to be indelible. Though over the past few years he has adjusted to his new context to fit in. He now says sweets instead of candy, maths instead of math. He speaks of his teachers as miss and sir, just as I did. The latter honorific now striking me as peculiar because I'm hearing it on his democratic American tongue. When my son calls me on his phone after school to say he'll be home later than expected, he says, quote, we're going shop, unquote, just like his new friends say it, the ones I can hear larking in the background behind him. He used the expression at first with a slight self-consciousness, but in a spirit of openness. Gradually, it has become his default. He is accommodating himself to London, this new city to which he had been translated. In moving my son between two English-speaking countries, I have not made available to him the opportunity to become fluent in another language. Unlike his classmates with Romanian or Somali or French parents, he cannot move easily and unconsciously between two tongues. But learning to speak like a Londoner is granting him a certain flexibility. I have watched his growing comfort with this new language and am gratified. This expansion of range is, after all, one of the reasons why my husband and I decided to up and move. When I reflect on the upheaval of moving countries in midlife, I am shocked by what the months of displacement, the anxiety of resettlement, and the disconcerting unfamiliarity of daily life have taken out of me. On a merely practical level, the experience is draining. In so many ways, it would have been easier to stay put. We have voluntarily given up comforts and continuities in favour of choosing a more open-ended prospect. 
My husband and I told ourselves that we wanted to make a change of our choosing before unsought change was visited upon us. We chose to get ahead of the instability that we felt was inevitable by destabilising ourselves. We hoped and trusted that we would be assimilated by placing ourselves in a new context, that there would be value for us in seeing the world from a new vantage point. But we knew too that there would be cost to our choice, and that moving would demand of us a reckoning with loss. The closer I am to my mother, from whom I was distant for so long, the farther I am from my beloved American family, my sister-in-law, my brothers-in-law, my husband's three adult sons. Indeed, we learned of the impending birth of our first grandchild only after we had moved to London. When my husband's oldest son called and we put him on speakerphone, his voice sounded thrilled and proud as we looked out of the window toward a garden wall along which a red fox creeps at twilight. But my midlife is my son's youth and the move has already shown him that the world is wider than it would have appeared to him had we never strayed from our old neighbourhood in Brownstone, Brooklyn, with its scrappy basketball courts around the corner, its friendly, progressive middle school, and its constantly inflating property prices, its coffee shop where, on the sidewalks outside, dogs slurp at aluminium bowls of water while their owners stand in line waiting for their own carefully crafted refreshments. I have seen teenagers grow up in New York, and I know how the competitiveness of the city, the urgency and drive and self-importance of it, the characteristics that so thrilled me as an ambitious new arrival in my early 20s, can leave a young person feeling defeated before she has begun. I have seen, alternatively, how New York can make a young person believe that there is no other place in the world significant enough to matter. I want to inoculate my son against such provincialism. I want to nurture his native cosmopolitanism. I go to a party at the home of a new acquaintance in central London. It's like being transported back to a party from the 80s, the decade in which I first left England behind. Everyone is drinking whatever gets put into their hands. Everyone is smoking cigarettes that will leave my hair reeking by night's end. There is urgent, shouted conversation about art and politics and history. I fall into conversation with a woman, a filmmaker, with some recent success. Reflexively, I explain my relocation. I cannot bear to be taken for just another Londoner, someone who never left and made a life elsewhere, though my British accent remains intact, belying my 30 years away, my American passport, my American fidelities. I tell the filmmaker that I want my son to grow up with the ability to move comfortably among countries, continents, worlds. You want to turn your son into an Englishman, she replies, with a note of apparent satisfaction at having found such a neat formulation. God no, I reply, surprising myself with my vehemence. That's the very last thing I want to do. My son is a complete American, born a New Yorker as the summer dawn broke over the East River, its rising red disc visible from the hospital bed in which I first held him in amazement. My son, blessed in childhood with a cheerful temperament, has what I think of as an American's optimism, an American's openness. Even though he has been raised and loved by an English mother with her English instincts for repression and regret. Those instincts may account for the aspects of my decision to move that I find hardest to explain to a stranger or to anyone. The sense that I wanted to dislocate my son so that he would know what it is to yearn for elsewhere. I did not bring him to England in the hope of bequeathing on him an alternative national identity as an Englishman. My ambivalence about this chilly, moated island nation does not accommodate that fantasy of homecoming. I have known many city dwellers whose affection for the structures of their own childhood is so great that, upon becoming parents, they wish to replicate them, and thus 
yearn to move to the country or to the suburbs. I do not share this longing, though I am delighted by the pleasures of introducing my son to the landscape of my childhood, to have him bounce on the same seafront trampolines as I did, and race along the same cliffside slopes. There is no sense in which I want to reduce his world to the narrowness of that from which I came. What I do want to grant him from my own childhood experience is the corollary of that narrowness. I want to cultivate in him a sense of ambition and a quest to roam, attributes that in my own adolescent experience were nurtured by a sense of never quite feeling at home in my home. By uprooting my son just as he was about to begin applying to high schools, I placed his childhood definitively within one retrospective landscape and offered him an unknown vista for his adolescence. I am excited for what this new territory will offer him. London is a good place to be a teenager, friends old and new have told me. There's a freedom offered by the city, with its sprawling streets and generous parks, its network of tubes and buses, its intersecting social circles. These days, I often walk past high-spirited gatherings of kids on Hampstead Heath, lounging on blankets with bottles of drinks that they aren't old enough to buy, playing music on loudspeakers that they aren't supposed to use here, and their vitality delights me. Their pleasures seem almost arcadian. These hours wild away in urban fields under open skies display a liberty that seems to me both wilder and more innocent than that offered by the sophisticated constraints of life in New York City. I want my son to have access to that range and freedom and sense of ownership. I want him to get to know London like a new language that he's mastered while his tongue is still flexible. But there's something else that motivates me. A sense of displacement is so continual to my own being I seem to have been compelled to make it my son's inheritance. I have given him this questionable gift, a lost place to long for. So to recap, that was The Common Tongue of 21st Century London by Rebecca Mead from The New Yorker. Hope you enjoyed this long read. And until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.